Um, hi, hello, tour guide tell all pod listeners. Uh, we are back in your ear holes for another installment and we are excited about it. Uh, as always, I'm Rebecca. I'm Becca. And together we are the Rebecca's. And we're back with some more fun, fascinating, interesting, scandalous, cool tidbits uh, from DC. Uh, And thank you guys specifically for listening and keeping this going. Please tell your friends about us. Uh, We uh, appreciate all the support on the Twitters and all of our patrons are the best. Huge shout out. We have been getting some really great emails over the summer and it's just so, so nice to hear from all of you guys. We're also like loving those of you who have booked tours because you've heard the podcast. Um, So if you have friends who like to travel, you know, send them towards the podcast because we do talk about some great sites. And I definitely have people now who have like planned their trips around seeing things we've mentioned on the podcast. But thank you to everybody who's um, sent us uh, really awesome emails. It's really, really uh, exciting. I love Betsy Thompson emailed us and gave a shout out to the pod uh, and a couple suggestions uh, for some topics. So we always love when you guys pitch the pod. Yes, please keep the ideas coming. Uh, we are very excited to, uh, we're giving back, giving tours, we're doing the pod, we're like steeped in history all the time and it's the best thing ever. So Uh, We are in the midst of summer as we're recording this. You're going to hear this in August. We are going to do a couple episodes at the beginning of August and then take a little bit of a break, sort of our own version of an August recess. August is hot in Washington. Rebecca, what is an August recess? For those who are not DCers, Washingtonians, can you give it a nutshell? In a nutshell, if you've never been to the nation's capital in the summertime, it is very hot and very humid. And it, by August, it has been both of those things for seemingly forever, but at least two months at this point. And in the olden days, there was not air conditioning. And that makes things worse. And if you can imagine our uh, early congressmen, and they were all men back in the day, uh, they're wearing their suits and their ties and they're in the Capitol and there's no air conditioning and they're sweating and it's disgusting. And so they basically decide at the beginning of the Republic that August just needs to not be a time when we're here. And so August recess dates back until the beginning of Washington DC because it's really gross. And it's lovely because Congress leaves and then the president leaves and then all of their staff go on vacation. Well-deserved so, vacations, I will very say. Very well-deserved Shout out vacations. to everybody who's worked so hard on the Hill this summer. Absolutely well-deserved vacations, 100%. They deserve more vacation time. But it's really nice for those of us who stay in the city because traffic is easier and you get the sense by August that the fall is coming. And I don't know about you all, but I love the fall the most. So August is a good month, actually. So we're going to take our own version uh, of an August recess. And uh, we're going to take the last couple of weeks off. And so we will not be back in your ear. We're going to do this one and then another episode. And then we'll, we won't be back in your ear holes uh, until after Labor Day. And we got some exciting September episodes. So I am really ready to go. But. What are we talking about this week, Becca? So this topic, we, you know, we try very hard on the podcast to span uh, time periods and try to make sure we're not sitting in one era, one decade too, too long. That's really something we try to be um, smart about. And we try not to always talk about the most famous people. I mean, we could say, let's do an episode on George Washington and there's plenty to talk about. Um, So we sort of hit on this topic. I sort of hit on this topic thanks to Uh, school tours. So a lot of what we often do in a typical year is work with students and school tours started coming back a little bit to the DC area late um, spring, early summer. And in June, I went back to Mount Vernon for the first time since March of 2020. And Mount Vernon is a place that in a normal year, we go what, once a week? We probably go to Mount Vernon 40 times a year. 
with with uh, with student groups and then when people travel or friends come in or whatever. Uh, and so the first time back at Mount Vernon, it's still very much um, when I was there a few weeks ago, um, they still were sort of limiting the time the students could be inside, um, trying to be cognizant of COVID and distancing, um, especially for teenage visitors and, and, and student visitors. And so they had quite a number of their interpreters out on the grounds. And I think one of the things Mount Vernon does very, very well is the kind of interpretation you get from the live interpreters. Uh, these are historians, performers. Um, they're very, very good at their jobs. And there is a particular guy, shout out to Matt Mattingly, who I don't know personally, and if he hears this, please know I'm a huge fan and I always take my groups to see you when you're there, who frequently <laughs> portrays a man named Tobias Lear. And all I really knew truly about Tobias Lear was he was Washington's secretary. He was there when Washington died. And basically everything we know about the last 24 hours or 48 hours of George Washington's life comes from Tobias Lear. And that's reason enough to find the guy interesting. You're with the father of our country when he dies. But hearing Matt Mattingly interpret Tobias Lear's life with students and hearing him answer questions and starting to talk about his own life and his own marriages and his own situation, all of a sudden I started going, wait a second, there's a lot more to this guy than just having been there when Washington died. So I started getting into a huge research hole which was super, super fun. And the more I read, the more shockingly scandalous Tobias Lear's life was. And I texted Rebecca and I was like, we have to do Tobias Lear. Um, I love it because it's the founding generation, which we've touched on, but we've sort of avoided getting too heavy into the founding fathers uh, on the podcast. So I think it's nice to kind of be towards the end of our first season and kind of circle back to the founding fathers. And I hope that this episode is going to uncover a little bit of a scandal, a little bit of a, and tragedy. There's tragedy to the story. There's a lot of tragedy. There's a lot of juice. I had, I mean, I, like you, knew who Tobias Lear was. I've heard the interpreter at Mount Vernon, and they really have such great interpreters there. It is what I think Mount Vernon does best. Mount Vernon is so great. I like, I just, every time I go there, it's just delightful. And if you've never been to Mount Vernon, go and sit on the porch and look over the Potomac River. And I never can figure out whenever I go there why George Washington ever left. Like I would just stay there forever. Give me a book and some iced tea and I'm good. Um, anyway, Tobias Lear, so I'd heard about Tobias Lear and I knew like the bare bones of like who he was and that he was involved with Washington as his employee, but that's what I thought he was. And then Becca's like, we should do Tobias Lear. And I was like, okay. And I read more into him and like Becca was kind of, fell down a little bit of a rabbit hole. He knows everybody and he has this very tragic story and the country was a lot smaller back then. And so he's connected to so many people. It's a little Forrest Gumpian in that he yeah. crosses paths and he's involved with all these key moments. But also, it is kind of tragic. There's some mm -hmm. sadness. There's some, you know, love and tragedy in this. Um, and not to spoil too much, but there's also a lot of question marks in this story. And we are going to have to couch some of what we share because there are like lost records and there's, you know, mystery and uncertainty. And so this is, I think, a historian's dream because there's just enough to be juicy, but also enough, like as a storyteller, enough mystery to make it exciting. Yes, correct. Cool. I love it. Shall we so, start? Yeah, I will jump in and I'll give the like bare bones because I'm the New Englander here. Yeah, give us the New England. Well, so Tobias Lear is born uh, in 1762 in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, which is on the, Mass the New Hampshire coastline. And it's adorable. Portsmouth, it is very, that whole area of New England. Is little cute this. little New England shipping town, whatever you're thinking as like that stereotype, that's what it, it's so adorable. 100%. He was born in a house that still stands, which is amazing. And they're going to turn it into a bed and breakfast, like it's a historical site. And what I loved when I read about this, the Becca's outline says that he's fourth generation born in this country. And then I did more research and I realized he's the fourth Tobias or the fifth Tobias Lear, the fourth one born in this country. So his like great, great grandfather, Tobias Lear, comes over from England to Portsmouth. They all make ships for several generations. And then his dad, Tobias Lear, the fourth, has him in a house that 
his grandfather built that still stands on Hunking Street in Portsmouth. So like for me though, it's just like this guy, I mean, 1762 and he's already been here four generations. Not a lot of his contemporaries can make that same claim. Like no one can make that same claim. Like that's insane. <laughs> like 1762, five generations earlier, they must've been on like the third boat over here. That's crazy. Um, and he's got like cousins that are kind of cool. Like his cousin, John Langdon uh, is going to be a delegate to the constitutional convention and sign the constitution. He's also governor of New Hampshire for a little while. So he's connected to the cool people and he's educated at Harvard, which also is still there. Um, and so he's like an American. He considers himself not British as much as American. And he's um, goes, opts for college rather than fighting the, the American Revolution. I don't blame him, to be honest. He also would have been a little young for the American Revolution. He doesn't turn 20 until it's nearly over in uh, 17. Uh, 82. Um, but turns out that's a savvy choice uh, because I, like I just mentioned, he graduates as the war is ending and he's going to build a big network there. And then he meets someone important, Becca. Who does he meet? So, you know, here's Tobias Lear. He's a guy who up until this point, his family has been building ships for the most part. And these are established, connected families. But, you know, we're still talking ship makers. We're not talking necessarily movers and shakers yet. But um, while Tobias Lear is at Harvard, he is going to become good friends with a young man whose father is Benjamin Lincoln. Benjamin Lincoln is going to be, um, he fights in the American Revolution. He's a good friend to the big kahuna, the big guy, George Washington. And so Lear sort of gets taken in by the Lincoln family. They are really impressed with Lear. He's a smart, intelligent young man. And Benjamin Lincoln knows that his friend George Washington is looking for a tutor, looking for a tutor at Mount Vernon and wants somebody who is smart and educated and who might be able to handle some other tasks as needed. And Lear is kind of like not interested in building ships. He went to Harvard to try to, you know, better his, his life to kind of move up a station in, in the world. And, uh, you know, he didn't fight in the revolution, so he doesn't have that connection to Washington. But Benjamin Lincoln is definitely a good enough uh, recommendation. So it's Benjamin Lincoln who recommends Lear to George Washington. And the job is really like, it's a bit of a mishmash. They need tutors at Mount Vernon because Martha has grandchildren which we'll touch on in a minute. And George Washington um, needs, you know, clerks and secretaries. Um, if you've seen the musical Hamilton, right? I you sort of really focuses on that role that Alexander Hamilton plays during the revolution. But after the American Revolution, Hamilton's secretary of the treasury, right? He's got other things to do. Um, he's, you know, becoming a lawyer. He's doing a lot of other things. He's no longer just going to be like pushing paper for George Washington. So Washington needs young new fresh dudes uh right to handle his correspondence and handle kind of the day-to-day -day. so this is a really good opportunity for tobias lear he's also in debt from going to harvard <laughs> because college back then also costs money um so he has debt which is going to be a theme in his life and the economics of our young nation were very touch and go. Um, the economy was really in flux. Inflation would grow and shrink and grow and shrink. And so Tobias Lear really needs a steady source of income. And this is going to be a theme in Tobias Lear's life, right? Doing things because he needs the money. He is, yeah, the debt seems to be a big deal. And he's so grateful later on in life to Benjamin Lincoln that he's going to name his only child after Benjamin Lincoln. So Benjamin Lincoln Lear uh, is his son. Um, and we'll get to his personal life in a little bit, but there's a spoiler alert, a good bit of tragedy. Whew. I know it's a rough one. So um, do you want to tell them about the grandchildren, about who he's tutoring? Oh, yes. Okay. So this throws a lot of people on my tours and I have to like explain this and I'm sure that you do too. George Washington, as if almost everyone knows, did not have any biological children of his own. Father of our country, but not the actual biological father of uh, anybody. But as anyone knows, you don't need to contribute DNA to a child to be its parent. Uh, he marries a widow, a wealthy widow, Martha Dandridge Custis, uh, who comes to the marriage with uh, a previous, a deceased husband and two young children. 
children. Washington is going to raise her children as his own in every possible way. He provides for them. He guides them. He's just, he's a good and loving step parent. Uh, and for all the evidence that we have, they respected him and really adored him. Uh, Martha Washington's daughter, Patsy, will die pretty young, uh, and her son, Jack, gets into some trouble, uh, but he has a few kids of his own before he dies. And so in their older years, the Washingtons are going to find themselves as the guardians for Jack's, a couple of Jack's children, including George Washington Park Custis uh, and uh, their, uh, her granddaughter, Nellie. And so those are the two children that are at Mount Vernon. And again, Washington raises these two children as his own. He leaves them things in his will. He's, they're very much like his kids. So this is who Lear is tutoring. Um, it's uh, Washi, as George Washington Park Custis was known, and Nellie. Um, but also not just um, these two children, but also various nieces, nephews. George Washington had um, half-brothers and those um, you know, half-brothers have children. So he's got nephews and great-nephews. And uh, it's weird. I don't think people always think of Mount Vernon as a place where children were um, because we don't think of George Washington as raising kids. We think of him as like fighting a war and running a country. But Mount Vernon was, it was a place with a lot of children. Uh, and because Washington felt very duty-bound and very obligated to care for the widows and the children so often left behind in this era. Um, so any extended family member often found themselves with a chance to stay at Mount Vernon, live at Mount Vernon. And so Lear is really integrating himself in not just with George and Martha Washington, but he's getting to know the whole extended family. And he really becomes part of the family by tutoring because he's getting to know all of these children really, really well. Um, he is basically like a true member of the family. This is not just a, like we think of a tutor today. You show up, you do a couple hours, you leave. He lives in Mount Vernon. He's basically part of the household. The longer he's there, the more job responsibility George gives him. George Washington basically describes the job as this. Mr. Lear will sit at my table, will live as I live, will mix with the company who resort to the house, will be treated in every respect with civility and proper attention. He will have his washing done in the family and have his stockings darned by the maids. So maybe when we say tutor, you might think of a certain level or class that that slots into, but he's saying, uh-uh, Tobias is basically on my level, which is a pretty remarkable thing for a guy who grew up in a shipbuilding family. Because when we say, you know, Washington saying he's going to sit at my table, do you know who's at Washington's table? Founding fathers, military generals, you know, um, emissaries of foreign countries. These are big, important people that Tobias Lear is starting to interact with and engage with and build relationships with. So this is really like being, you know, invited to the big boys table, quite literally. Yes. And he's very much... Washington seems to depend on him. And one of the things that's kind of interesting to me is throughout his life, Washington has like friends that like are not at his level that are a little bit younger, like Hamilton and Lafayette and Tobias Lear that he like. The fact that he has no sons, you could really read into this. I'm not going to yes. psychoanalyze it. But no, no, no. But he really Lafayette have... and Lafayette and Hamilton and Lear. Um, he forms these mentorships. There's it's a fathering thing in a weird way, too. Like, I feel like this is in part because he doesn't have his own sons that he and I don't want to psychoanalyze George Washington too much. But I think there's something very sweet about his sort of mentorship of um, all of these men, but particularly Tobias Lear. And Tobias Lear is, he's going to handle bookkeeping and accounting and uh, all of this George Washington's correspondence. And when George Washington gets elected president of the United States in 1789, uh, he's going to go to New York with him because that's where the capital then was. And he, you know, he's handles the personal expenses while he's president because, and this is important. And I want to like pause on this for a second. George Washington is very, very, very concerned with his own money versus the expense of being president of the United States. He doesn't want to as take he a should salary, be. as he should be. And he understands. And the one thing that about is to me, the most amazing thing about Washington is he knows that what he's doing is going to be the roadmap for everyone that occupies this office after him. And so he wants to behave in a way that reflects that. And so he's very careful about his money. And George Washington was careful about his money anyway. Like the man had a record of every penny he ever spent like respect. 
Um, and honestly, Lear was keeping a lot of those records. <laughs> Lear was keeping a lot of those records. And so it's very important to Washington that he not be seen and in fact not be abusing his public office, taking public money that he doesn't need to. He didn't want to take a presidential salary. It was basically forced on him because they said, we have to pay you for this. But he wanted to look very much like he was not profiting from his office. And so Lear handling his expenses, first of all, given how really nitty gritty and micromanaging Washington was about his money. And second of all, given how focused he was on the appearance of his money, that's a really big deal for uh, Tobias Lear. That's a really big sort of feather in his cap uh, of responsibility, uh, of trust uh, and of mentorship. Like I think that's a, it says a lot about their relationship. The other thing I'll say about the expenses of being president is today, right, we have a federal budget that allows for entertaining and state dinners and all these different things, right, they're, they're factored for in a federal budget. When Washington is president, there's almost none of that. There's barely a federal budget. There's barely a sense of federal money. And Washington very smartly is like, if you give me a salary, then you're just going to expect me to pay out of pocket for all this stuff. And that salary is not going to cover all the dinners I'm expected to host mm -hmm. and all the travel I have to do. Travel was expensive. It is yeah. now, but it was certainly expensive then. And so Washington very quickly is like, mm, I think we need to make it clear that when I'm doing things as president, I get reimbursed by the government. And right. that was a big part of this expense reporting too, was he knew that, you know, you come and have 10 people over for dinner. That's not free. That's not cheap. Um, you know, and as soon as Washington establishes this sort of idea that the president's going to live and work in the same space, he very quickly is like, but the money needs to not be. <laughs> right. The money needs to be separate. And that, you know, you can't just have 10 people over for dinner as the president of the United States. You have to have 10 people over for dinner. Like this is, you're representing the country and in an age before, like, you know, lot of formal dining rooms and stuff like you're having them in your house you're serving them with your food like this money needs to be accounted for in some way and I feel like it's just so savvy of Washington to understand this and Tobias Lear is right in the heart of all of this bookkeeping which is so vital and there's such an incredible amount of trust and and you know we're going to talk a little bit later in this episode about some of the things that might question that trust but in this era at a time where Washington has an incredible weight on his shoulders of establishing this presidency, he really, truly, implicitly trusts Tobias Lear. And um, I think that there are many things you could say about Washington, but typically a good judge of character is what we often say, right? We look at the people that he trusts, the people he doesn't trust, uh, and he really trusted Lear. Uh, when George Washington's elected for a second term, though, Lear is kind of ready to branch out. He's ready to, to be his own man a little bit. You can see the sort of ambition. Um, it's also very easy to branch out when you have the president of the United States as your close personal friend. And basically, Tobias Lear starts a company. It's, right. Like, who's not going to take that meeting? Yeah, yeah. Right? <laughs> or who's not going to invest if you say, you know, who else is backing me? George Washington. Maybe you've heard of him. Maybe you've heard of him. Yeah, exactly. Like, can you imagine? Like, <laughs> I used to be private secretary to the president. Can we talk? Like, yes, yes, we can, yeah. please. <laughs> so Tobias Lear is going to form this new company called T. Lear and Company. And basically, he forms this company in 1793, uh, which is at a time that George Washington is very focused on developing and creating the federal district. So Tobias Lear's ambition uh, is definitely coming forth at this period, and he sees an opportunity. He knows Washington very well. Washington is going to obviously need to develop this district. Um, developing this is really going to mean um, promoting traffic along the rivers, developing canals and constructing canals. And of course, a big way that Washington raises funds for the development of the District of Columbia is to land speculate, essentially. So Tobias Lear wants in on this. So he forms a company and he's basically got Washington's backing and Washington's support. And, you know, there are plenty of other people trying to get into this game, but it's also it seems like a good idea, but it does not go well for Tobias Lear. No. Um... Yeah, he loses money selling land. He feels big. He feels really big. And uh, it's it, this is 
reading between the lines about Tobias Lear, the man does not seem to actually have been very good with his own money. Like he was very good with Washington's money somehow, but he does not seem to have been anywhere near a A good clerk is not necessarily a good accountant. You know what I mean? Maybe whether it's that or, you know, it's he was a good documenter, but not a good spender. And also, it doesn't seem like he maybe had the judgment that Washington did. Like a lot of business is risk taking and um, trust. And he does not seem to have had like the eye to do that correctly. So he's going to lose big. He actually is going to, in the late 1790s, steal actually money from George Washington. Um, We'll get to that in a bit. But George Washington's going to bail him out, gets him a military title which he refers to himself as Colonel for the rest of his life. Um, basically, it's a title. He never serves. He's not out there, you know, he's not out there during the Whiskey Rebellion or during any of these skirmishes happening. Um, he, it, it, This is George Washington doing Tobias Lear a favor. Uh, Tobias fails big with this company. He And it's shoddy. All the work that his company's doing is shoddy. It's bad work. None of these plans are any good. He's not working with reputable people. And he spends more money than he takes in trying to sell land. And I think Washington feels bad for him. I think Washington wants to help him. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, Lear's personal life in a minute. And I think that might help you understand why Washington is so invested in him. But this title is basically like it's a bailout because yeah. the title comes with a little bit of money. The title comes basically with, hey, you're now you've got a military title. So there's a little bit of military money that comes with that. And it helps to buy a Lear safe face because now he's not failed businessman or former secretary. He's Colonel Lear. Right. And the backdrop to all of this is his personal life, which is happening like sort of at, at the, the same, same time. time. As this. So in 1790, he marries, marries his childhood sweetheart, Aww. whose name is Mary Long. And for reasons that I have never been able to figure out, Mary and Martha are all known as Patsy. Like, I've also is- seen, I've seen Mary referred to in some Tobias Lear documents as Polly too. So there's these various nicknames here. Yes. They have one son. They marry in 1790. One so son, Benjamin Lord. Lincoln Lear, just as Benjamin a reminder. Lincoln Lear. And they marry in 1790. The son is born in the next year. And then Polly dies in 1793, a yellow fever epidemic in Philadelphia, the capital has then moved to Philadelphia. She actually dies in the president's house. So like in Washington's house. So to give you a sense of how close he is to George Washington, his wife is dying in the president's house. She gives house. birth to their son in his house. Yes. And then dies in his house. So like they were not just co-workers. No. They were very, very close. And this yellow fever epidemic, FYI was bad. Like 5,000 people in Philadelphia died. Like this was a bad scene. Uh, Two years later, he is going to marry a woman named Frances Bassett Washington. She is a recent widow and her deceased husband. So her former husband is a a man named George Augustine Washington. Now, I feel, Becca, very strongly that I have heard that name Washington before. Where have I, who is she, how is this connected? So this gentleman that Francis nicknamed Fanny, um, which will come up again, uh, she's married to George Washington's nephew. That is, or was married to. So she was married to George Washington's nephew. She is herself a niece of Martha Washington. So these families are intermarrying like crazy. And like, I just want to back up for a second about Polly uh, or Mary Long, Tobias's first wife. Martha Washington in particular takes a real interest in Tobias Lear after his first marriage because she was very, very fond of his first wife. And she was very devastated when um, Tobias's first wife dies. And she actually goes to her husband, George, and she says, I want you to pick the most important dignified men you know to be pallbearers for this poor girl's wedding. And he selects Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton, among others. So not only is George Washington super connected to Tobias, but Martha, who is very influential on George, now has this really invested interest in Tobias. So it is not at all surprising to me that the second person he marries is Martha's niece, her beloved niece, 
who was married to George Washington's nephew, who's now widowed. So, and he also becomes stepfather to her three children with George Washington's nephew. She unfortunately doesn't live very long. Uh, George Washington loves this though. He loves that he, that Tobias Lear has literally married into the family and he's gonna give them like land at Mount Vernon and a house on the property and it's all very exciting. But unfortunately, Frances Bassett Washington only lives seven months. And its records are a little spotty, but I mean, it's like six, seven months. She may have, she dies of tuberculosis. She may have actually been ill with tuberculosis when they married. So the timeline here is not good, but you, if you are a cynical person, you might look at Tobias marrying this woman, even though she's not in good health and going, maybe marrying uh, Washington and Mar- or George and Martha's beloved niece slash widowed wife of my nephew was a good move, even if she wasn't going to live so long. Also, you know, he's providing for her kids, maybe, who are about to be orphaned. Yes. I don't know. So they're not going to be totally left uh, alone. But this is really where, I mean, before Tobias was living, you know, at Mount Vernon as an employee, employee more or less, but now he lives on the property as a member of the family. And so in six years, he's lost two wives, which is rough. It's a lot. He does marry again, a third time, several years later, 1803. He marries another Francis. He, his third wife is Francis Dandridge Henley, who is another niece of Martha Washington. She had a bunch of nieces. So work through this. <laughs> First wife, childhood sweetheart, grew up together. Very cute. Second wife, niece of Martha Washington, married to nephew of George Washington. Third wife, another niece of Martha Washington. And wives two and three, both nicknamed Fanny, which makes it very easy. You don't have to remember anyone's name. That's true. You just say Fanny and hope for the best. Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, at the time that he marries his third wife, I should note at this point, both George and Martha Washington are no longer with us. So, um, cause we're sort of talking personal life all at once. I also want to bring up here just for a moment that, um, and this is something that they touch on at Mount Vernon, I think in a very smart way, but Tobias Lear becomes a slave owner an enslaver. And you might ask yourself, how does a guy from a shipbuilding company in new England own slaves? And it's through this right? It's through these marriages. With his second marriage, when he marries the first Fanny, Frances Bassett Washington, she has lands and enslaved people that are part of what her ex-husband leaves her. After his death, they're part of his estate. Mm -hmm. And now when Tobias Lear marries her, whether he likes it or not, he now owns them because that's how it works. She doesn't own them anymore. He does, or really her children Mm do. Um, and, you know, I think they t- the way that they interpret this at Mount Vernon, I think uh, Matt Mattingly is very smart about this because you can see how this system of enslavement is so insidious and how it can start to wrap its tentacles around people who aren't even born into it. Because simply by marrying her, he becomes an enslaver and then she dies. So now he's got enslaved people to as part of his ownings and his properties. And then they belong to his stepchildren and he can't get rid of them because they're his stepchildren's inheritance. So um, not to make excuses or explain away, but just to kind of understand how this system worked. Um, You know, he marries into it and then becomes an active player in it. And you also see like he can't get rid of the, the enslaved persons because they don't actually belong to him. They belong to the estate of his minor stepchildren who he's now responsible for. And so you see how insidious the system is. And you also, by the way, see how insidious patriarchy is because like once he marries her, the slaves are no longer hers. They're his just is it's a it is an unfortunate system and it's just, he becomes sort of enmeshed in it. But I think it's, it's important to note because even though he is sort of this new England, he's from New Hampshire, he's from this whole yeah. area where there isn't this plantation system. And yet, as we get to the late 1790s, like many people at Mount Vernon, he is part of this institution. Mm-hmm. Um, he is, George Washington will often bear, bail out Tobias Lear financially, even when it might not have been in his own interest to do so. Um, He is 
uh, Lear in the 1790s is going to become more and more financially destitute. He will run errands for Washington. And at one point during one of these errands, he's going to collect rent from Washington's tenants but pockets the funds. And so George, I know it's really bad. George Washington is going to find this out when he questions the tenant about why they have not paid. And honestly, did he think he was going to get away with this? Like, how do you, anyway. Um, And Washington's furious, which honestly, I don't blame him. Um, Lear has literally stolen money from him point blank ball probably face. didn't need to at any point he probably could have just asked for money right that's and i feel like that's part of what washington like you can imagine washington saying i would have given you the money if you'd asked i consider you family you live in my house my maid darns your socks like you don't need to steal from me and first second of all how did you think did you think you weren't going to get caught and so washington's furious and Washington had a temper. He worked his whole life to control it, but he did. And he doesn't speak to Lear for two days, which seems like a lot when you're working that close together. I don't want to get the, the, the silent treatment from George. No, no, no. And this is not um, an isolated incident, unfortunately. No. Throughout Lear's life and career, and some of this is unsubstantiated, so I, I this is where we're getting into some gray area because Lear never spoke to some of these incidents, but other business partners of Lear, men who try to partner with him in other businesses, will accuse him of similar misdealings. Lear was supposed to collect money. It never gets collected. Money was supposed to be sent. He was going to arrange for this payment. It never got arranged. And it makes you start to question maybe what happened with T. Lear and company when he Mm -hmm. tries to start his company. It fails so spectacularly. Is it because he's skimming? Is it because he's mismanaging? Is it because he's supposed to be collecting money and giving it to his partners that he never does? Um, That's what he's accused of doing by some of these men. So the fact that we have documented, because Washington documented everything, we have documented instances of the situation with George, it does raise the question when you hear these accusations or read these accusations in other letters going, did Lear do this to other people? Right. So that brings us to December 1799. If we could insert sad violin music underlaying our voice, imagine sad violin music, December 1799. George Washington, so George Washington, and I point this out on a couple of my tours, when he retires in 1797, he is a hale and hearty 65 years old. Yeah. He is, there is every expectation that he has 10, 15, possibly 20 more years of life ahead of him. He's in excellent shape. He takes good care of himself. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a man who rides, exercises, doesn't eat much because of the teeth. Um, and you know, he has access you, to clean drinking water and doctors. <laughs> He, when I when I take people in the American History Museum, there's a one of George Washington's suits that he wore in his late 60s. And let me tell you, like G-Dub kept it tight. Like he was, there was not a lot of fat on this man. And so he was expecting a nice retirement at home with his grandkids and it was going to be really great. But he gets sick um, literally two and a half years into his retirement. He is going to... Um, die unexpectedly in December. He goes out in a rainstorm and gets a cold. Well, a hailstorm, I guess, would probably be more accurate. He gets uh, doesn't change out of his wet clothes before sitting down for dinner. And there is every reason to suspect that Tobias Lear was at that dinner because um, he was in residence at Mount Vernon at the time. And Washington's going to get sick and medical stuff was not real great at the time. Basically the treatment that they thought would save him in fact kills him. Um, So Washington dies on Saturday, December 14th, 1799. And uh, he's ill in his throat. So speaking is difficult for him, but Tobias Lear is there at his bedside and records Washington's, his last conversation with Washington. Everything. We're going to link this in the show notes. There are exceptionally detailed accounts. Basically, everything we know about Washington's final moments, a a lot of what we know comes from Tobias Lear. Martha Washington touches on this a little bit in letters. Mm -hmm. Um, Dr. Kreck and a few other people will write their remembrances. But Lear gives us an exceptionally uh, detailed remembrance because he was probably at the dinner the night before, but certainly he spends all of that Friday with Washington. 
He's there reading the newspapers with him. In fact, because of the fact that his throat was bothering him, Washington basically asks Lear to do some reading and writing for him. Uh, Lear is just there. He's around. Uh, the other thing is, remember Martha? She's very, very fond of Tobias Lear. He marries her favorite niece. So like when this is all happening, when she's in distress, when her husband is dying and the doctors aren't listening to her, Martha says, I don't think you should bloodlet. I don't want this to happen. They're not listening. She really leans on Lear. She tries to get Lear to intervene. And she basically says to Lear, you have to handle this. He's going to, he's talking about a will. You know, um, George Washington gives Lear all these instructions on his deathbed. Um, Martha's too upset uh, to really handle this. So Lear is really there for him, but also for her. I mean, truly like a son for her um, mm -hmm. to be by her side during this time. And he, you know, he had Washington's trust, but he also had Martha's trust very much so. I love some of the instructions that George Washington gives Lear as just some fun tidbits if you don't know this. Um, at one point, he asked Lear to get the wills. There were two of them. Washington amends one and burns the other. So who knows what was in the burnt will? Um, he also tells Tobias Lear, don't bury me for two days. That's not unusual. It's not unusual, then. but I love it. I love it so much. They want to make sure they're really dead. Make sure we're actually dead and not just like in a deep unconscious sleep. Right. Like they didn't have like heart monitors and the things you see on ER like back then. You, you didn't make sure they're really dead. Um, so, so I, I, I won't read the whole thing, but I think just to give you a little quote, um, just a little bit of, of quotation here, um, you can sort of, if you read through these details, I mean, he's talking about who's in the room, who's there. Um, at one point, Lear writes, about 10 o'clock, he, that's George Washington, made several attempts to speak to me before he could effect it. At length, he said, I am just going. Have me decently buried and do not let my body be put into the vault in less than three days after I am dead. I bowed assent, for I could not speak. He then looked at me again and said, do you understand me? I replied, yes. Tis well, said he. Those were George Washington's last words. Tis well. So, I mean, it reads so beautifully. He really, you know, he made notes and stuff, and then he wrote down these proper journal entries. And you really feel like you're there in the room. Um, so we're going to link those in the show notes. You should really check it out. It is, I think, the single most important contribution Tobias Lear makes to this country is documenting this intensely personal and monumental moment in American history. Yes. And he also is then going to oversee all of the funeral arrangements because Martha, Martha can't him. deal. Um, and he measured even the details of measuring the corpse, six feet, three and a half inches long, one foot, nine inches from shoulder to shoulder. Uh, he is basically in charge of the site selection for Washington. They had planned a tomb for him that they had not yet built because no one expected him to die this young. So Tobias Lear is involved in selecting his first tomb. He'll later, Washington's body will be later moved and that's a whole other thing, but he's compiling and completing his plans to compile his collection of writings and documents. He is probably going to burn a lot of Washington's letters and diaries, particularly the stuff that had to do with Martha, because we don't have any of that. It is not, Martha may have burned all this stuff, but it's also very possible that she trusted Tobias Lear to go through all of it and figure out what was, what was important and what wasn't. Yeah. And what was personal and what was public. And that's like a that's a lot of trust. Like you're, go he's going through your basically your love letters, and deciding. No, I don't think the public needs to see this. Like this is not a thing that that the public would want to see it. We would dearly love to have these now, but I feel like that's a lot of trust to say to Tobias Lear. Look, I don't want the public to see this. This is a part of our lives that we get to keep for ourselves. And at the end of Washington, in his retirement, had been planning to inventory, compile, document his massive collections of writing and documents. And he basically tasks Lear with taking this project over, right? It's one of the instructions he gives him to take this over. And so this is where the scandal, the biggest scandal of Tobias Lear's life comes in. Lear certainly touches on scandal with the many marriages and the dead wives and the, the business failings, but this is a big one because word spreads, people know that Tobias was there. He's the guy writing all the, all the letters after Washington dies. He's, he's the guy. 
And he has been tasked with working on a biography of George Washington. This was something he was going to write with one of Washington's nephews. And Lear has, at this point, pretty much all of the Washington documents. And it seems as though Tobias Lear is very open to collaborating and working on this project. But then Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, John Marshall gets involved. He volunteers to write this biography of George Washington. And he is going to have to kind of press Tobias Lear a little bit. Hey, buddy, um, I'm now writing this. I'm, I'm an important dude. I got a lot of sway. You need to send these documents to me. And when John Marshall receives the documents, there's stuff missing. And not just like sweet little love letters to Martha Washington stuff. There's huge sections of Washington's diary that are gone. There are key letters that people believe to exist that are not there. Lots of his presidential diary entries are gone. Yet surprisingly, or not too surprisingly, when George Washington went to Portsmouth in 1789 to visit the Lears at their family home, every little tiny detail about that trip is still there in whole. Huh. And here's where things get a little even trickier. Marshall questions these missing documents. You know, how is it that there's whole months, whole years where there's nothing from Washington? We know there was correspondence. Where did it go? And Lear writes a really long letter to John Marshall and says, I don't have anything to do with this. All that stuff must have been purged before I got it, hmm. which is questionable because we know that he's there, right? He's there with Washington in his retirement. He's there after Washington dies with Martha, probably helping her purge and expunge these documents. So for him to claim that he doesn't know what happens to these is a very hard claim to believe. Yes. I'm not, I can't out and out say that he's making it up because we don't know, but it's very hard to believe he doesn't know where those documents ended up. You would almost believe that he was correct and that he doesn't know that maybe Martha purged them or maybe George Washington purged all these documents before his death. The thing about this that just makes me pause is that all the documentation about him going to Portsmouth survives. And I feel like that's just a little too convenient, you know, and it, it just is such a you almost want to feel bad for Tobias Lear in this moment because he's clearly like invested in a task that he is not entirely up to. He's not entirely. It's also probably a task that it's almost an impossible project It is because you're never going to make everybody happy, right? No. People are going to be mad that they have, they don't have unfettered access to Washington's personal thoughts, or people are going to be mad if he includes anything that is deemed as unseemly or inappropriate. Or if you're the guy that Washington's criticizing in that letter, you're going to be not happy that it got published. Right. And you also have a duty to your mentor, your friend, your basically father figure yeah. who supported you, who, you know, wants some of this stuff to remain private and personal. And so I feel like there's just, you have a duty to history, like all of these guys and there's George Washington and his family and Martha. I think Martha cared about this a little bit less than George did, but there's very much a sense of like, he's going to be important. He's an important man. How do we best treat him in history? And so there's a lot of that, um, I think at play here as well. And then the other wrinkle to this is we know that Tobias Lear writes Alexander Hamilton offering to suppress Washington documents. He basically writes Hamilton and says, there are, as you know, among the several letters and papers, many which every public and private consideration should withhold from further inspection. So here he is basically saying, we have a right and an obligation to censor or edit or, you know, control what of Washington's papers are made public, but then claims to John Marshall that he doesn't know anything about why some of these are missing. It's highly suspect. Yes. And let's remember, he's connected to Washington, but he's also connected to many of these founding fathers. And so if there were, say, letters or documents unflattering to mm -hmm. Hamilton or Jefferson or anyone else, Madison, um, Lear is not necessarily in a position to anchor any of those guys mm -hmm. because Washington's gone and he's got mouths to feed and he has family to care for and he has, as he has his whole life, debt. 
And so Lear is kind of the kind of person, and you get a feeling of this, that he's always sort of thinking about that, right? He's always treading a little carefully about making sure that he's um, in the favor of the right people. Yes. Yeah, there's a obsequious quality to Lear that kind of comes through. Good uh, SAT word. Thank you. Um, he, yeah, and I just... There's not a lot of documentation about Jefferson and Washington's relationship for because of this. And you kind of get the sense like Jefferson has written about Washington unflatteringly. Jefferson and was, extensively and extensively <laughs> like, I mean, Jefferson wrote about everybody and he wrote about everybody extensively and he had opinions. But like his opinion of Washington was like, on the one hand, like Washington's a good dude, like he clearly wants to do what's right. But like Jefferson is very open about the fact that he didn't think Washington was super smart. <laughs> like he basically comes, and because it's Jefferson, he doesn't, like he couches it because that's who Jefferson was. But like, you can kind of get the sense that maybe Tobias Lear is going to burn some of these letters where Washington is like, yeah, TJ sucks. Yeah, there are rumors that there was at least three rounds of rather pointed, borderline nasty correspondence between Jefferson and Washington. This set of three letters, possibly more, um, disappear. Lear, when drunk, will admit once that he saw the letters, but he later denies that they ever existed. George Washington's nephew would later say that he heard from overseers at Mount Vernon that the letters were very real and very damaging to Jefferson. In fact, so damaging that it might have been something that could have jeopardized Jefferson's presidency or his political career. There are also references in Hamilton letters that these letters about Jefferson existed. Hamilton believed that they existed. And there are rumors that abound that Jefferson goes to Tobias Lear and asked him to destroy them. And if Lear did do that for Jefferson, that then gains him a pretty powerful ally, especially and when Washington's gone. As it turns out, Jefferson's then gonna appoint him as a commercial agent to Santa Domingo. So Lear, basically these letters disappear these letters that may or may not have existed may or may not disappear. <laughs> yeah, may or may not disappear. And then Jefferson's going to give Lear a job. A really good job. Good one job. that should have been easy money. He gives him a commercial job as a commercial agent in Santo Domingo, but Lear is quickly going to be like, yeah, I don't think so. There's a rebellion of enslaved people on the island of Santo Domingo. And Lear is like, yeah, I'm not. He's not that. interested in that at all. He's like, I thought I was just going to sit here and collect tariffs and not yeah, have to I do anything. I think I'd have to dodge like a revolution. So he quits this cushy job. And how does Jefferson reward him? <laughs> Gives him another job. Further away, as it turns out, uh, the Consul General to the North African Coast. So this this man who has up to this point never left the United States. This man who has no real experience with diplomacy or any anything like this. He's really been a clerk and an accountant if nothing else. Um, he now gets two positions abroad. And not only does Jefferson mm -hmm. appoint him to be this council general to the North African coast, he basically sets it up in such a way that he is allowed to conduct his own personal business there. So he is basically given the freedom to conduct business for the country, but also has no restrictions on establishing his own trade relationships, skims, whatever he wants to do on the side. Which is what we would call today a conflict of interest. Yeah. Or tit for tat or a bribe or. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or that too. <laughs> um, he travels there on the USS Constitution, Old Ironsides, which is still with us in Boston. Yay. And this is basically a honeymoon trip because uh, this time he's married wife number three. So the second Fanny, the third wife, um, marries him and then off they go to North Africa. Which must have been, like, North Africa in the early 1800s. It must have been amazing. Yeah, but also, like, can you imagine, like, she has only really ever known Virginia. And then it's yeah. like, all right, here we go. Yeah, Tripoli, let's go. Um, he is the primary negotiator of the Treaty of Tripoli. And then James Madison gets him a job back in D.C. at the War Department as a secretary. And, in fact, he's in the Capitol when the British burn it down. 
not the building. He's in D.C. He's in D.C. Um, I think actually potentially at the War Department. I think he's like at the War Department building. He's like in town when this goes down. He's not at Mount Vernon. He's in D.C. when the British come. Um, But think about that. So Jefferson hooks him up with two good jobs. Madison hooks him up with a good job. So Lear's really, you know, endeared himself to these men in some way. And maybe it is just because, and, and this could, I think, legitimately be true. The shadow of Washington is large. And after Washington's death, even the men who criticized him the most um, start to sort of had a, you know, put him on the pedestal as we still do today. And so they're very much, he had the touch of Washington, right? So that yeah. certainly could um, explain a little bit of why he's a little Teflon and nothing seems to stick to him, at least on a professional level. And then his, he dies. He commit, um, on October 11th, 1816, at 54 years old, he commits suicide for reasons unknown. There's no, he had suffered throughout his life from depression. He had suffered from severe headaches, uh, but he does not leave a note. There is no real, there's no, we have really no idea why the specific reasons are unknown. Uh, He also does not leave a will. So this record keeper, this guy who had been keeping the books has neither a will nor a suicide note. And it's not that he doesn't have assets because he does after three marriages, after having been so entwined into the Washington assets, it's sort of remarkable. Like someone who doesn't own property in this era, dying without a will is not unusual. Mm-hmm. A man who has property, both both human and physical, a man who has wives and uh, stepchildren and various people that he cares for and loves for, Um, He leaves them without a will. And this meticulous record keeper, it doesn't make any sense to me. Um, It's really fascinating. And while we don't know, he did not indicate in any way, his wife Fanny says in letters that she doesn't know or understand why, other than she knew he suffered from headaches. I think it's important to note that even though he continues to stay in the good graces of these men in charge, he takes a real beating in the American press after Washington dies. In the early 1800s through the Madison presidency, this is a man who is often brought up for this suspicious lack of Washington papers. Anytime questions come up about the Washington documents, his name is dragged back into it. And for good or for bad or for however much other people were doing it, he seems to often use his government appointments to enrich himself. And that comes up frequently. So this is a man who certainly in a personal sense or a public sense is having to sort of um, defend his reputation over and over. And he's, he, despite being a man of property and of asset, he's consistently in debt and he's in debt when he dies, um, which is unfortunate. And I would also like to say that like, you know, we always think of people from New England as being very anti-enslavement and he was from New England, but he clearly did not scruple to A, own people himself and B, associate and take jobs from people who owned people. So I would like to mention that. He certainly, uh, and by not leaving a will, he doesn't give himself the opportunity to follow Washington's lead and potentially, uh, and again, it would have been difficult because most of the enslaved people in his family assets were the property of his stepchildren, but he could have in his will at least done something uh, or followed Washington a little bit in that, which he doesn't. But yeah, 54 years old, he's honestly not old. When I was doing this research and thinking about all the things he'd lived through and all experience. And he dies at 54. I know. It's really young. Um, he's buried at Congressional. Yeah, Congressional, Congressional Cemetery, which we mention all the time. Because everyone's buried there. Uh, and his son, Benjamin Lincoln Lear, his only biological child, becomes a lawyer in DC and dies at age 40 in 1832 after a relatively fast illness, also buried at Congressional. Yeah, so I um, I definitely, I've been to Congressional many times. I've never sought out Tobias Lear, but this is the next thing I'm doing next time I go, is to look for Tobias and Benjamin. Um, and Benjamin Lincoln Lear, you can actually find a couple really good eulogies. He was very well respected. Um, we sort of mention him briefly, but his relationship with his father is really kind of estranged. After his mother dies, when Polly 
slash Mary dies. Um, I think Tobias, it's, it's, it's a heartbreak for him. And I think he loves his son, but he doesn't really know how to raise him. So Benjamin is basically raised at boarding schools. He is raised by his grandmother in Portsmouth. So he spends his time in New Hampshire. He's not at Mount Vernon. Um, and he basically starts his life and his career without a lot of help from his dad or the Washingtons. He doesn't really seek out that sort of like um, boost that perhaps having the endorsement of the Washingtons would give him. Now he's sort of connected whether he likes it or not. And I'm sure he benefits from that, but he doesn't seem to be interested in going to George Washington and saying, what can I, what can I get? How can you help me? And so he's a really fascinating man. And if you read the eulogies and the remembrances for Benjamin Lincoln Lear, he was really respected and admired in DC, um, even though he dies at the relatively young age of 40. So yeah, if you are interested in sort of um, Tobias Lear related sites, Congressional is great. And we've mentioned it a lot already, but Mount Vernon. Um, Mount Vernon, um, you, Tobias Lear is everywhere because of the role he played in George Washington's life. He's throughout the museum, the education center. He's so key. So many documents you'll see are notated as being Tobias Lear documents um, or as notated by or recorded by. And then as we mentioned before, there are wonderful historical interpreters, including Matt Mattingly, who portrays uh, Tobias Lear frequently and does an incredible job. I, I have watched him field some insane questions from eighth graders and do it with a plum and uh, really has no compunction about sort of tackling the trickier aspects of Tobias Lear's life and biography. So yeah, this is just, I, I had to talk about this guy. I had to do it. This is good. No, I had no idea there was this much juice here. You know, and it's it's something I, I think we talk about often as a theme on the pod, but that, you know, it's easy to sort of focus on the big guys, the big names. It's easy to whitewash a lot of the stuff. It's easy to just sort of hit the highlights. But, you know, it was life was hard back then. It was tough. And not everybody was born into exceptional wealth. Not everybody had an easy path. I think um, it's useful to sometimes look at the people. And certainly Tobias Lear comes from plenty of privilege, but this is a guy who fails at a lot. This is a guy who probably makes some bad choices. This is a guy who isn't always perhaps of upstanding character, but is often maybe just trying his best. And a man who finds himself at these pivotal moments in history. And so I, I like sort of when we have a chance to examine these big events and big people through the eyes of somebody like Tobias Lear, who is in many ways still a bit of an outsider. Yeah, yep, the extraordinary ordinary man. Uh, I love that. Is, yes, is a really, I think that's who he is. He's in the company of really extraordinary people and he knows it, but he is just kind of a witness to what kind of what's going on. I will mention, we'll have a couple of things in the show notes um, that'll um, highlight some of his most important writings. We're also going to include a few things from Mount Vernon. There is one good book written about Tobias Lear that I've actually put onto my to buy list um, because this is the only in-depth biography of Tobias Lear that's been written, The Checkered Career of Tobias Lear, which is an that amazing rhymes. title That rhymes by Ray Brighton. Yeah, The Checkered Career of Tobias Lear. So I hope that we see more. You and I, I know have both between us read several Washington biographies and Lear gets mentioned frequently, but um, only one book in my research that really digs into Lear's life. And uh, we go up through Portsmouth semi-regularly uh, to go up to Maine, uh, where my husband's from. And uh, I definitely, next time I go to Portsmouth, I'm seeking out the Tobias Lear house. The Tobias's Lear house. Tobias's Lear, yes. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. It's so fun um, to be sort of wrapping up this first season. We're really excited. Um, when we come back after Labor Day, we're really thinking about this as our second season. And we'll be celebrating our 100th episode in the second season. So please, if you have pitches, send them to us. A lot of you have sent us pitches and know that your ideas are getting worked in and we're really excited. We just love all the feedback you guys give us. So on Twitter, we're at Tour Guide Tell. On Facebook and Instagram, we're at Tour Guide Tell All. Follow us, engage with us. We're out here doing tours. We do virtual tours and virtual stuff as well. So if you want to connect with us and you're not in DC, that's totally an option. Also, a huge thank you to our patrons. Yes. Our patrons of the wind beneath our wings. We love you. We love you. And actually, we will, before the August recess, have a little special patrons-only goodie coming out. So if you are a patron, you're getting something special and if you're not a patron this is the time get that it's three three dollars a month is the the entry level which gets you access to these kind of special patron only stuff cool i love it i love it 
Um, do you want to tease what our next August episode might be? A little tease oh, for oh, our last oh. season one episode? Our last season one episode. Wow. It's going to be a bit of a downer. <laughs> a um, dinner party? A dinner party of some kind. Um, we talked about, we did a Western episode a few months ago and we I rattled off a bunch of topics that I would love to talk about because I'm fascinated by the development of the West. And we're going to talk about one of them that was a patron request. We got this request on Twitter and we're really excited about it. And it involves a, a party of some kind. And that's all I'm going to say. That's all we're going <laughs> to say. Thank you guys so much. Uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.